1: so luther i think gave us the formula for how to handle these things it's just stand on scripture alone and let the chips fall where they may
0: we're on that we're on the same side we may disagree on, on certain theological issues yeah, but I, I, we're I, on I the, the same side not with no not at all and, and Wait, look how nice we are each other yeah.
1: no i enjoy this and uh, appreciate all you do out there for the lord It's like, you know what? What are you doing? You're spending all your time trying to destroy another Christian because you don't understand what's going on when you should be out there winning people for Jesus. Uh, We're not supposed to be blind sheep. We're supposed to be brands. And so just to, no matter who it is, this goes for
0: everybody. Um, you're, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of yours. I'm a big <laughs> fan. It, it's, it's true. I, I love watching you and I love hearing what you have to say. And I think you're a, a great blessing to the body of Christ. Okay, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Conversations with Jeff. I'm really excited. We've got Mike Gendron on um, as our guest, and I'm really excited to have you on as uh, to be able to have this conversation. We'll talk about your testimony and just a lot of uh, the different topics you cover, especially focusing on uh, Catholicism and that sort of thing.
1: Sounds good, Jeff. Good to be with you.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and the way I always start first time I have somebody on is just give you a chance to kind of share your testimony, your background, how, how God saved you and that sort of thing. And it seems like, you know, that's everybody's favorite part of this podcast in general. But, um, you know, by all means, you, you would love to hear your story.
1: Well, sure. My new birth was supernatural. Of course, that's the story of everybody's born again experience, but I was a very devout Roman Catholic. For 35 years of my life, I grew up in a very devout home. My mom and dad were very devout, and my uncle was a Roman Catholic priest. Early on, I was an altar boy for seven years and later taught high school Catholic Christian doctrine. And then even after that, I was uh, responsible for bringing the first Bible study to a Roman Catholic church. That was in 1981, St. Patrick's Church in Garland, Texas, and... I would really like to go back and erase all of those tapes that were done because an unregenerate person cannot really teach the Bible. But anyway, that was one of the steps that the Lord used. I I got an interest in the Bible, and shortly after that, I went to a three-day seminar on evidence for the Christian faith, and that's when I was really encouraged to submit to the Bible as my supreme authority in all matters of faith. And so... I began reading it earnestly for the first time, and as I read the scriptures, I had a great crisis in my faith, because what I was reading was diametrically opposed to the plan of salvation that I'd been taught as a Roman Catholic, and ultimately, like any good Catholic, I was putting my faith in my religion and the priesthood to dispense grace to me through the sacraments. And I didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I had one with a priest. And so I was reading the scriptures. I recognized that this, the gospel, the gospel of salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 was a couple of verses that really got me focused on what the grace of God is in salvation. Because there, the apostle Paul says, you are saved by grace apart from works. And it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And so I was trusting in my works and my sacraments up to that point. But during this crisis of faith, I would do something that was quite foolish. I would call my uncle, the Catholic priest, and ask him, why does the Catholic Church teach this way of salvation, and the Bible goes directly against it? And he'd ask me to give him examples of how the Bible went against the Catholic Church. And so I would share verses like Titus 3.5, that he saved us not because of deeds of righteousness, but because of his mercy. And he would make comments like, well, God doesn't really mean what he's saying there. And I thought that was really arrogant of a Catholic priest to try and say what God is saying through his inspired and word. And so during this whole crisis of faith, As I kept going further and further into the scriptures, I knew I could not trust the Catholic Church anymore, and it was then that God granted me repentance, and I turned from trusting in what I was doing to save myself and putting my complete trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the full payment for all of my sins, and that literally turned my life upside down. I started witnessing to everybody that I knew had a heartbeat. I had a real compassion for Catholics because I knew that all of them were believing the same lie that I believe, that you are saved by your works and not of grace. And so the more I shared with people, the more I recognized that there is a huge mission field. 1.2 billion Roman Catholics are believing a works righteousness salvation. And then I got to studying the Reformation and I realized why the Reformers, who were very devout Catholics as well, how as they began reading the Bible, they found these great truths that I found as far as salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, and all for the glory of God alone.
0: Yeah. Now, now, explain for people just in general, as basically, like, what is the difference in the Catholic version of the gospel and, you know, us as like evangelical or Protestant? Like, wh- what's the main difference? Because I, th- I feel like a lot of times in society today, everybody's saying, well, you know, Catholics and Protestants, it's all under the Christian umbrella. Um, so differentiatingly, what is the difference between Catholics and, uh, and Protestants and evangelicals?
1: Well, there's quite a bit... Of difference between the two faiths, and it really boils down to they have a different authority. Roman Catholics submit to the Bible as one of their authorities, but they also have sacred tradition, and they also have their infallible bishops and popes. So it all starts with an authority. With Catholics, since they have three different authorities, then they can twist and distort the scriptures so that it coincides or harmonizes with their tradition that's been evolving down through the last 1600 years. So another authority leads to another Jesus. The Jesus of the Catholic Church is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is the all-sufficient Savior. The Jesus of the Catholic Church merely opened the gates of heaven by his death on the cross, and now each Catholic must do their part to get through the gates of heaven. So another Jesus always leads to another gospel. And the gospel of the Catholic Church is diametrically opposed to the gospel of grace. We know that um, because Christ is the all-sufficient Savior, that he did everything necessary to save sinners completely and forever. But the Catholic Church denies the promise of the gospel. A Catholic never has the assurance of eternal life, which is the promise of the gospel. They have only conditional life. And it all comes back to the doctrine of justification, you see, the Bible says that we are justified forever. I love sharing Hebrews ten fourteen. By one offering, he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. So when the gavel in heaven comes down by the Holy Judge, Almighty God, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, because he bore all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our punishment, and in turn he gave us his righteousness, when the gavel comes down, the repentant sinner is acquitted. He's no longer condemned. He's now justified, and he's justified forever. And that's because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer. But in Catholicism, they don't use the word impute. They say you are infused with righteousness. And that justification for a Catholic is only temporal. If you commit a mortal sin, you're de-justified, and you now need to be rejustified by confessing to a priest doing the works necessary to obtain the merit necessary for salvation so a roman catholic goes through this cycle hundreds of times justified dejustified rejustified never knowing where he stands before a holy and righteous god so a different authority a different jesus a different gospel two different paths to eternity Believers are on the narrow way that leads to life. Roman Catholics are on the wide road that leads to destruction. And they're there along with all the other works works righteousness religions. You see, biblical Christianity is set apart. We have an all-sufficient Savior, therefore we're saved by God's unmerited favor, His grace. But Catholicism, Mormonism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, they all have a works righteousness salvation, which means... You must do things to appease a holy and righteous God. And so a long answer to your question, what are the basic differences? But ultimately, it all starts with an authority. When you trust the infallible authority of God's Word, His inerrant inspired Word, then you know that you are believing truth. And I've coined an expression that the Bible is what God says. Religion is what man says God says. And there's a huge difference between the two.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, and and I think one of the other confusing things, I think, for a lot of people is, is when, you know, when, because we both use the Bible as our source, you know, both Catholics and Protestants. But then you add in, you know, the Pope, you add in the the different, you know, angles of authority and that sort of thing as well. Um, But like, I know that I was talking with a Catholic friend, you know, fairly recently, and we were kind of messaging back and forth and one of the things that he said was that uh that, that for us for us as catholics it's it comes down to believing same as us but i think that to a certain degree there's a difference of definition and that's the thing that i found when dealing with you know issues within islam issues within mormonism and i think even issues within catholicism is that they'll use the same terminology but then have a different definition of that terminology so when like a catholic says that you're saved by faith you know obviously we know that there's additional things that all that are also required but for them is it that they're just all lumping all of that together into just
1: faith yeah the object of your faith is of utmost importance obviously everybody has faith and we really go back to the garden adam and eve had a perfect relationship with god because they were trusting god they had faith in god But then another voice entered the garden, the voice of Satan. And so Satan had them believe the lie. And so they shifted their faith to the devil. The object of their faith was now the devil rather than God. They still had faith, but the object changed. And so that brought condemnation to them and the whole human race. The only way to be justified so that you're no longer condemned is to make sure the object of your faith is not the devil and his false teachers, but the object is Christ and His Word, and so those who are condemned must shift the instrument of their faith, the object of their faith to Christ and His Word. That's the only way to be justified. Yeah. Now, now, I
0: think the other the other thing that I think often comes up, and this is all kind of relating to the gospel and Catholics and that sort of thing, is are there are there let's say Catholics that are saved? and because that that's one of the things that I keep hearing popping up amongst the the Protestants and the evangelicals is that well you can't condemn all Catholics because they're believing in Jesus like is it possible for a Catholic to go to heaven?
1: Well it depends on how you define Catholic. If you define Catholic as one who believes the teachings and traditions of his religion, no, a Catholic cannot be saved until he repents and believes the gospel of Jesus Christ, then he's no longer a Catholic. Now he's a born-again Christian. And so it's it's really how you define it. And I would go so far as to say there are born-again Christians in the Catholic Church. I was one for a while, but the Spirit of God eventually moved me out because in John 4.24, we see that God seeks worshipers in spirit and in truth. It's impossible to worship God in spirit and in truth and an apostate false religion as Roman Catholicism. And it is an apostate form of Christianity. And I'm not saying this based on my opinion. It's based on historical documented facts that the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church, anathematized or condemned over 100 times those who believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that was when they officially and dogmatically departed from the faith of the apostles to the point that they not only deny the gospel of Christ but they condemn anyone who believes it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and I think I think and again kind of going along with this too, it that kind of leads into this whole ecumenical side of with within the church because there's there has been a push to kind of bring Catholics and Christians together just like there has been to bring Muslims and Christians together saying that we all worship the same God. And it's just different forms of worship and that sort of thing. And I know guys like Rick Warren have really been working closely with the Catholic Church. And so then the question then becomes, how should we as Christians be dealing with and interacting with the Catholic Church? Can we do any partnerships in ministry? Are, do we even have the same mission field? I would argue no, but you know, I would love to hear kind of like your perspective on that kind of push within evangelicalism.
1: Well, sure, Jeff. I just finished uh, my second book. It's called Contending for the Gospel. And the reason I wrote the book is because the greatest attack on the Christian faith today is on the exclusivity and the purity of the gospel. We have ecumenically minded evangelical leaders that are trying to bring unity between not only Roman Catholicism and evangelical Christianity, but also Orthodox Christianity And it all started with these Unity Accords back in 1994 with Chuck Colson and Richard John Newhouse that were co-authors. We had subsequent Evangelicals and Catholics Together Accords. Most recently, 10 years ago, we had the Manhattan Declaration, and that's when more Evangelical leaders such as Al Mohler and Mark Bailey of Dallas Seminary, they both signed on stating that We are co-belligerents with Catholics and Orthodox, and we share a common faith in the gospel. And this is the furthest thing from the truth. They have a different gospel. It's based on works righteousness rather than the grace of God. And so we not only see the compromise of the gospel through ecumenically minded evangelical leaders, but also through the seeker-friendly movement. You know, you've got evangelical pastors now that are dumbing down the gospel message they're leaving out the offense of the gospel so they can draw a larger following. And so oftentimes they will rarely mention sin or the holiness of God. Our churches have become entertainment centers, and they pretty much downplay the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we've got this great attack on the exclusivity of the gospel. Pastors want to make it more inclusive so they can get a larger following and be more popular and loved by more people.
0: Yeah. No, no. What what is really the strategy with the uh ecumenicalism? Like is this something where it's just a lot of these pastors are naive and they don't understand the difference or like I don't I don't always understand like the game plan or like the end game of a lot of the evangelicals that are pushing for this ecumenism and that sort of thing.
1: Well, I think there's a couple of things. Number one, there's nothing wrong with being co-belligerents and fighting the social and moral wars that we have going on in our country standing together but whenever you introduce the gospel into a unity accord then we can no longer be united because it is now not only a a cultural war but now it's a spiritual issue we cannot be united with unbelievers i mean paul made it so clearly in second corinthians that we are not to be united with unbelievers that light has nothing in common with darkness and so, anytime you incorporate the gospel into a unity accord for co-belligerency to fight the social and moral issues of our day, then you've defeated the purpose. And I really believe that if evangelical leaders recognize that God is sovereign, that all he needs is a small remnant of dedicated believers to fight the cultural and social wars by means of spiritual warfare by means of sharing the gospel, by making unbelievers believers through the proclamation of the gospel. That's the way to win the social and moral wars. But instead, they come together and they dilute the gospel, they compromise it, daring to say that we share a common faith. So that's one issue. The second issue is that I think Christianity has become a, a faith of herd mentality they see these well-read Christian leaders that are very popular and they have radio and TV shows and they've written books. And so when one of them signs a unity accord, they think, well, they're very well adept at Scripture and so they must have read it thoroughly and they must agree that this is biblically sound. And so they just follow suit blindly. And so we're coming to the point in our Christian walk that People are following Christian personalities rather than submitting to the authority of God's Word and testing every man's teaching with the authority of Scripture. And that's why Acts 17.11 is so important today. That's where the Apostle Paul, as he was preaching in the synagogues of Berea, he saw the Bereans testing his teaching with the Scriptures to find out whether or not it was true. We need to do that today. Test every man's teaching with the authority of Scripture.
0: Yeah, which, which is an interesting parallel. And, and I, I keep, I keep saying that, uh, that within Christianity, we have this celebrity mindset of, you know, we follow our favorite pastor and then we just go along with whatever they say, which is an interesting parallel with the Catholic Church because that's essentially what they all do with the Pope. And so it's weird that that's kind of crossing over into our camp and, and within the true church is we're still having that same mentality. Uh, Why do you think that that's happening, and what do we need to do as the church in order to knock it off?
1: I really think there's been a dumbing down of uh, Christianity in America. And so rather than be a disciple of Christ, abiding in his word to know the truth, I think most people are just um, listening to their favorite Christian personality and not really being students of Scripture. And so oftentimes when your pastor is not faithfully preaching the Word of God, and there's very few pastors that are doing that today, exegeting verse by verse and book by book, instead it's more topical. And so when people in the pew are not getting a steady diet of the Word of God, then they're not hearing truth. And then if they're not hearing truth, they cannot discern what is false. And so rather than do the work and to study to make yourself approved unto the Lord, they're just being lazy and following Christian personalities. And that's the state of the church in America today.
0: Yeah, which, which in all reality, like when we go back and we do look at the Reformation, that, that was one of the main things that, that led the Reformation was this idea that, you know, that only the Catholic priest could, could read God's word because it was in Latin and you're keeping that away. And I feel like to a certain degree, we're kind of seeing that in the church today, except, except that it's, only the pa- only the people that went to seminary can actually truly understand God's word. And then everybody else in the congregations just follows along with what their seminary degree pastor says. I think to a certain degree, that, again, there's kind of a parallel there, which is an interesting um, comparison, I think.
1: Yeah, biblical ignorance is fertile ground for deception. And just the other night, I went out to a, a festival here, and I, I sat down on a bench in front of a restaurant and, As people would sit waiting to go into the restaurant, I engaged them with the gospel. And 86% of Americans profess to be Christians, and all but one of the people I talked to over three hours professed to be a Christian. And I love asking a simple question. Why did Jesus have to die for three hours after talking to 20 to 25 couples? Not one was able to articulate why Jesus had to go to the cross and die. They usually said, because he loved us. Well, that was his motivation. But they don't understand that divine justice had to be satisfied, that the wages of sin is death, which is why he had to go to the cross and die to satisfy divine justice for those who would put their trust in him. And so it was just heartbreaking to see so many people professing to be Christians and not even understanding what the gospel is all about.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's really concerning because I, I even feel like to a certain degree, like even looking at just, you know, even friends or Christians or people in some different churches and that sort of thing, it's like the churches don't even really preach the gospel all that much anymore. You know, like a lot of times what, what they're doing is they're talking about the gospel or they're talking, uh, you know, about the Bible, but people don't really understand the ins and outs and what it is that they actually believe, which, again, is kind of an indictment on a lot of the preachers in the pulpit. And it's, you know, again, like you were saying earlier, it's we got to get back into God's word, not just having these like kind of feel-good sermons and that sort of thing. Because, again, the church is really being dumbed down, and nobody really seems to be able to have the discernment to kind of come back at a lot of these attacks in the church and really understand what the Bible actually says
1: yeah it's really heartbreaking when you read Matthew seven and when Jesus said so many he used the word many will say Lord Lord in the last day and and you know they're they're boasting in their works and what they accomplished even even though Jesus says, Depart from me, I never knew you and so clearly even though they called him Lord, they were doing a works righteousness salvation and boasting of what they were doing and then he also says. You did not depart from iniquity, and so there was no repentance in their life. And so there are major seminaries today that say that you can go to heaven simply by believing in Jesus, and there's no call to be obedient to the first command Jesus gave in Mark one fifteen: repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is left out of so many gospel presentations today. And Jeff, when I was a Catholic, I knew that Jesus died for the sins of the world, That was history, but when I understood he died for me, that he was my substitutionary atonement, he satisfied the divine justice, that's when I recognized what salvation was. I didn't learn that in the Catholic Church. In fact, for 35 years, the Catholic Church never once taught the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And so many people, whether or not they're Protestant or Christians, would say, yes, I believe Jesus died for the sins of the world, But they don't personalize that and say, I trust Jesus died for me. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 has been my favorite verse, because that's where I recognized the atonement of Christ. He who knew no sin, that is Christ, went to the cross and took my sin, all of my guilt, all of my punishment, and what did he give me in return? His perfect righteousness. That's the greatest exchange in human history. My sin for his righteousness. So many people fail to recognize that and really trust in that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think we're seeing somewhat of a compromising the gospel even, even within evangelicalism. Like, like, you know, again, there's, there's this kind of Catholic idea that you're constantly having to re-justify yourself and that sort of thing as you're going along. Um, And, you know, I see this with certain theologies like, you know, this belief in like final salvation where you're justified, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're finally going to be saved. You know, that depends on how how your sanctification process goes will depend on if you're finally saved. Like, how is it that even some of this Catholic doctrine is infiltrating even the evangelical church?
1: Well, I believe a lot of it is because of this unity accord, these um, these attempts to unite Catholicism and evangelical Christianity. The only way you can have that unity is to suppress doctrinal truth. And so when you have evangelicals that do not know what the gospel is, then they look at Catholics who profess Christ, and they say, well, they must be Christians too, because they believe in Jesus, they love Jesus. But they don't understand that it's a different jesus that's one of our most popular gospel tracks it's entitled which jesus do you trust and in that gospel track i show six different contrasts between the biblical jesus and the roman catholic jesus in catholicism he's not the only mediator they have another sinless mediator by the name of mary so they not only have another jesus they have another mary and catholics especially catholic women would rather go through Mary. And then, of course, you have the Roman Catholic priesthood, which is another mediator. Catholics um, must go through their priest in order to have their mortal sins forgiven. I think one of the great miracles that took place on when Jesus gave up his spirit on Calvary's cross was when the veil separating the Holy of Holies was ripped open from top to bottom showing that now through faith in the shed blood of our Savior, we have direct access to God. We no longer need priests offering sacrifices for sin. We can go boldly into the Holy of Holies because Christ has given us access to the Father. Yeah. Now, now I
0: kind of want to shift a little bit, but you know, I wanted to see, have you explain this whole idea of the Pope and how he's kind of— the spokesperson for God, per se, because I think a lot of people understand that, but they don't necessarily understand the theology behind that and why Catholics believe that is the case. Can you kind of explain how that all actually plays out?
1: Well, sure. I believe the most important verse in Roman Catholicism is Matthew 16, 18, and that's where Jesus has just asked the question, who do people say that I am? And Peter, being the first to answer, said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, Roman Catholics believe that Jesus was telling Peter that I'm going to build my church upon you. You are the rock. But what did Peter just do? He just made a profession of faith as to who Jesus is, the long-awaited Messiah. And it wasn't revealed by man, but supernaturally by the Father in heaven. And so the only way the Church of Jesus Christ is being built today is when people make the same profession of faith that Peter did. The same thing happened to the thief on the cross. He was mocking Jesus initially. All of a sudden, he got the same revelation that Peter did, that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. And he went from mocking Jesus on the cross to putting his faith in Jesus through repentance. And so that day he would be promised to be with Christ in paradise. So back to Matthew sixteen, eighteen, that's where Roman Catholics believe the papacy started, that Jesus appointed Peter the first Pope. He gave him the keys to the kingdom. And of course he also gave the apostles the keys, but Catholics pretty much believe those are literal keys that they open and shut the gates of heaven. And they do it through the authority of the priesthood. But there's been a succession of popes down through the years. And this current pope is a Jesuit pope. And he would also trace his uh, line all the way back to Peter. But for this being the first Jesuit pope, and the Jesuits were started as a counter-reformation to uh, eliminate all the opposition to the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, So you go forward 500 years, now we have a Jesuit pope. He's pushing the ecumenical movement at a rapid pace, probably more rapid than any other previous pope. And he's suppressing doctrinal truth. He's calling for unity with Muslims and all the Christians and Orthodox. So we know in the end there will be a global religion, and I believe the catalyst for that religion is the Roman Catholic Church because they're the ones that are— building bridges into all the non-christian religions as well as all the protestant religions.
0: Yeah, and, and when you're talking about the current pope and how he is a Jesuit, like what does that actually mean? Because I know a lot of people that throw that term around, but a lot of I think a lot of people don't actually understand like the definition or what that actually represents. So when you're saying he's a Jesuit pope and that's and that's different than previous, what what makes him actually different, different practically speaking?
1: Well, remember the formation of the Jesuits to eliminate any opposition to the Roman Catholic Church. And they, I'm sure many of your listeners have probably read the Jesuit Oath. It is uh, quite startling to believe that uh, Jesuits actually have to sign that and agree to it. But uh, anyway, I, I really believe more than anything that the Jesuit agenda has always been to bring about this global religion, You see, when you study Roman Catholic eschatology, they don't believe that Jesus will return until the whole world is Roman Catholic. And so their motivation is to build bridges into all the people of the world and to bring them under the power and influence of the Pope. And so you've got a Jesuit Pope now and you've got all the Jesuits moving forward at a very rapid pace to bring this about you look at all the different ways the Jesuits have done this it's a lot of it through universities and schools and Catholic schools and hospitals any way they can to spread the Roman Catholic gospel this is what the Jesuits are all about
0: yeah which which again you know that that even reminds me look looking at again how a lot of Catholic theology has been infiltrating into the church there's a lot of this like kingdom now theology where a lot of you know, evangelicals believe we have to establish Christ's kingdom here on earth before he can return and, and all that kind of stuff. And again, it's it's crazy how much Catholic theology has infiltrated evangelicalism. And it's just in all these different arenas. And it's it's really crazy how even that mentality has is infiltrated our side of of the of the divide.
1: Yeah, it really is. And uh, I think we're living in very exciting times. Um, it's quite discouraging when you see the great apostasy unfolding and you see many Protestants leaving their churches to join the Roman Catholic religion. And I must say that the great calling card to become a Roman Catholic today is they have convinced people that you cannot have the fullness of salvation until you return to receive the Eucharist. And another major calling card is they rely on church history. You know, they beat the drum that they are the one true church founded by Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, and they also rely on early church fathers, and they point to them as people who believed in the 3rd and 4th century, many of the Roman Catholic traditions that are in effect today. And I say all that to say this, you will never find one Protestant leaving their church to join the Catholic Church because of Scripture. It is always because they believe it's the one true church, they have believed the early church fathers, and they've been convinced the Eucharist is necessary for salvation. It is not based on Scripture. And so more than ever, the dumbing down of America by not preaching the Word of God is fertile ground for deception. People don't know the Word, and so they're easily influenced and deceived by an apostate false religion. So we're seeing a lot of people joining the apostate Roman Catholic Church. So I say that's discouraging, but it's also encouraging because the Lord said these things must take place before he comes for his church. And so in one sense, he's purifying the bride. All the pretenders that have never been born again are falling away, just like the Bible said what happened in the end times. In Paul's letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he said, in latter days, some will fall away from the faith And follow doctrines of demons. And then he goes on to tell us what one of the doctrines they will follow, forbidding people to marry. The Roman Catholic Church forbids its clergy to marry. Clearly, it's a doctrine of the devil.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, the the other side of it, too, I think just with all of this is we're seeing both within – the evangelical church and within the Catholic church, they're going very, they're, they're going very far left and becoming very progressive. And we've seen that especially with this current pope of going extreme progressive. And then again, the evangelical side is kind of following suit. Um, what's the difference between the current pope when it comes to his, uh, progressivism and that sort of thing versus previous popes. Cause I feel like traditionally looking at, you know, looking at it, Catholics were typically more on the conservative side, especially when it came to things like being pro life and, you know, and that sort of thing. But it just seems like there's this push to go left within even the Catholic church. Um, can you kind of like talk about that from, from that perspective?
1: Sure. And I really believe that's why this pope is so ecumenically minded. The previous pope, Pope Benedict, he actually wrote the Catechism of the Catholic Church. He was a doctrinal guru. He had very defined lines as to what is the Roman Catholic faith and what is not. This pope is very pastoral, Pope Francis. I mean, he could care less about doctrine. And all you have to do is listen to some of the absurd things he said. There is no hell. That's not even historic Roman Catholicism. He says atheists can go to heaven as long as they're sincere in their faith, that's not Roman Catholicism. And so this pope, being very pastoral, he wants to be loved by all. Everybody thinks he's humble, even though he has stolen the titles given to the triune God, Holy Father, head of the church, and vicar of Christ. And so people are being deceived because this man is wanting to be loved by all. And so what does he do? He eliminates doctrine. And he eliminates the hard truths that you find in Scripture, such as the doctrine of eternal hell. And so Pope Francis, more pastoral, Pope Benedict, very doctrinal, and I think that's the major difference between the two.
0: Yeah. Now, now, how, how do people that are within the Catholic Church, how do they deal with it with if the Pope is the spokesperson for God, right? How do they deal with it when things are changing from one Pope to the next Pope? Like, how do they rationalize that? Like, are they saying that God is actually changing his tune? Like, it, that even doesn't make, really make sense to me either.
1: Yeah, most Catholics are nominal Catholics, and I was a very devout Catholic, I, but the majority, I would say 80% of Roman Catholics, they, they go to the Mass on Sunday. They usually arrive late and they leave early. They check their brain at the door. They go through all the rituals and the motions. And then they put God on the shelf for the next week. And so they're really not interested in much of what the Pope is saying. There are some very conservative Catholics, though, that are getting very upset with the type of statements this Pope is making because it goes against historic Roman Catholicism. And so you're seeing somewhat of a divisive issue in the Catholic Church today. There's about five cardinals now that have stood opposed to some of the teachings the Pope has come up with saying that they're not historic Roman Catholicism. It's interesting. They don't say it goes against the Bible. They say that this pope is going against historic Roman Catholicism. So I don't know. You could see a shift. You could see somewhat of a divisive element within the Roman Catholic Church. But in the end, I think um, because of the apostasy and the gathering together of more and more people, I think you're going to see this pope become more and more popular And even the subsequent popes, I think, are going to follow in the footstep of this pope.
0: Yeah. Now, now again, you know, because I know that they, they select the next pope, you know, when it, when it, when his time's up and that sort of thing is, so does this mean that the people that are like the decision makers within the Catholic Church, they're pushing to push the Catholic Church more progressive? Is that really what it is? Like they're establishing these more progressive, uh, you know, popes as we go along?
1: Well, yeah. When you look at there's only five conservative uh, cardinals that have stood opposed to the pope, that means over 100 are with him. And so I think he's won over most of the cardinals that either have been appointed by him or the previous pope. And so, yeah, I believe that the, the church will continue to go progressive because of the influence Pope Francis has had on the cardinals underneath him.
0: Yeah. And, and I think also like the other side of it too is like we've seen a lot of this social justice stuff infiltrate both the evangelicalism as well as the Catholic Church. And I think it was really infiltrating the Catholic Church way before, you know, it infiltrated us. It seems like it's, it's been more the last few years, especially. Um, but what, what really has been that push of changing even doctrine towards like dealing with issues like, uh, gay marriage or issues like illegal immigration. I know, I know the Pope has been huge on being critical of the United States on, you know, having borders and, you know, border security and that sort of thing. Um, is this all like a push for globalism and that one world government, one world religion that we see talked about in Revelation?
1: Yeah, it is. In fact, We have a monthly newsletter that goes out on the first of every month, and it's free to anybody that wants to sign up. They just send us their email. And each month, we give you the up-to-date the happenings that are coming out of the Vatican and Pope Francis. His whole agenda is globalization, whether it be for a global economy, global government, global religion. That is the constant drum that he is beating. Just a few days ago, he signed another global pact for education. He wants the whole world to be educated in the same way. And, of course, this is the way that Jesuits can influence people and indoctrinate them. It's through education. They've been so successful doing that in the educational realm for the last 500 years.
0: Yeah. in, in you know, looking, like, at the eschatology of things, like you were saying before, you think that, that the Catholic Church will be kind of probably like right at the center of that one world religion that we see talked about in Revelation. Um, so like, do you feel like we're, we're getting to that point to where they're being, they are being successful at bringing together all the world's false religions together and unify around the Vatican?
1: Yeah, I really do. It's just amazing to see over the last, um, I guess especially 10 or 15 years, how influential the Roman Catholic Church has become. And when we look at Bible prophecy, we see that there will be two men that lead the world into this global religion. There'll be a false prophet. And I believe if we're in the season of the Lord's return, the office of the Pope has to be the false prophet. Because most of the world believes he's infallible. Even evangelicals, Protestants are recognizing that infallibility of the Pope. And so you've got a false prophet that will point the world to a political leader, and these two will welcome in a global government, a global economy, and also a global religion. So, yeah, the Catholic Church has been very influential. It's loved by the world. It's loved by the media. And so I believe there's no stronger identity on this earth right now that will bring about this globalism other than the Roman Catholic religion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and so when when we're looking at all of this and looking at how really this is all playing out even in like the political realm and that sort of thing, what are we as Christians and as conservatives supposed to do in response to this progressive push by the Catholics about the false the false gospel by the Catholics? Like how how do we how do we let's say warn the world or how do how do we respond in general?
1: Well, and again, I think uh That's really been the importance of our ministry because very few people are educating evangelicals about the false and fatal gospel of the Roman Catholic religion. Instead, you're seeing evangelical leaders saying that there are brothers and sisters in Christ, which, by the way, Jeff, puts this huge mission field off limits to the evangelical church. If our leaders are telling us they don't need to be evangelized because they're already brothers and sisters in Christ— that discourages anybody from reaching out to them. And so our ministry started off by equipping people to evangelize Roman Catholics, but now we see more than ever we need to educate evangelicals of the need to evangelize Roman Catholics. They don't recognize they have a false and fatal gospel, that the gospel the Catholic Church teaches is antithetical to the gospel of grace. And so I really encourage your listeners to to visit our website, proclaimingthegospel.org. We've got a lot of articles and uh, a lot of resources to equip them, to help them to have discernment so they can see that the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ is antithetical to the inclusive gospel of the Roman Catholic religion.
0: Yeah, and and I and I really think that especially especially today because again there is this really big ecumenical push, but I think that especially today I think that the evangelical church needs to be more educated when it comes to catholicism, mormonism, and islam because there's so much crossover and there's so many different instances of using the same terminology but having different definitions, thus changing the gospel. And so it's really important that people are tuned in to organizations like yours and that sort of thing so that way they can be educated not only on what we believe, but on what they believe. So that way we can understand the difference when we're talking to somebody. Cause like when we're talking about justification or we're talking about, you know, the death of Christ or the need of the gospel or what the gospel even is, they'll use the same terminology. You know, even Islam will talk about Jesus, but it's a different Christ. And, sure. and that's, that I think is the key of what we really need to be doing within the church today.
1: Yeah, you're right. And I'm glad you brought up the. The definition of key terms as well. Every Roman Catholic believes they're saved by grace through faith. Roman Catholicism is the plus religion. It's grace plus merit. It's faith plus works. It's Christ plus other mediators. It's Scripture plus tradition. It's glory to God plus glory to Mary and the Saints. And so this is why the Reformers, when they were abiding in God's Word, they learned the truth and the truth set them free from this religious deception. And that's why the cry of the Reformers was, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. They did away with all the pluses that the Catholic Church had added to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as people witness to Roman Catholics, the two most important truths to share with them, number one, it's the supreme authority of Scripture. There's no higher authority than Almighty God and he has revealed himself and his plan of salvation through his inspired inerrant, authoritative word. I don't like the term sola scriptura when I witness to Roman Catholics because they will say rightfully so. That's a Protestant tradition. And it wasn't needed until the 16th century because prior to that, everybody realized that it's Scripture alone. But then at the 16th century Council of Trent, They added tradition to be equal in authority to God's word, which is why the reformers about Sola Scriptura. And so I prefer to say the Bible is the supreme authority. There's no higher authority than God. You need to submit to his word and read it so that you will not be deceived. So that's the number one. The second most important truth to share is that Christ is sufficient to save Catholics for completely and forever, to save any sinner completely and forever. You see, a Roman Catholic will not be willing to let go of anything they're trusting that they're doing to save themselves until they know Christ is sufficient. I use an illustration of a set of monkey bars suspended over hell. And as Roman Catholics, we're told as long as we cling to our baptism and our good works and our sacraments and the law, all these things we're clinging to will keep us from hell. And then I say, imagine that Jesus is suspended between you and hell. And he's saying, if you'll let go of those things that cannot save you and put all of your trust in me, I promise I'll save you. But if they're still clinging to those rungs when they die, they're going to lose their grip and they're going to fall into hell. Jesus won't be there. And so they have to make a volitional decision to let go and trust Jesus to save them. It's a vivid picture of what Catholics need to do. Trust the sufficiency of Christ for salvation.
0: Yeah. And, and, I, and I think to a certain degree, too, again, there's this mentality, even within evangelicalism, of, you know, I have to perform, even though I've already been justified, but I have to perform to prove my faith. And if I'm not up to a certain, you know, subjective standard, then all of a sudden now I, I'm questioning my faith. Am I saved? Am I not saved? Like, how, how does that all play out when even dealing with us and evangelicals, like when we're looking at our salvation, can we always be sure that we are saved or do we need to be constantly questioning our faith?
1: Well, as long as we're looking at Jesus instead of ourselves, yes, we have the confidence based on the promise of God, based on the power of God. Um, Jesus made a promise that I will lose not one the Father gives me. If a person is truly born again, they need to keep their eyes focused on the author and perfecter of their faith. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter talks about that our inheritance is reserved in heaven by the power of God. And so he was 1014, by one offering he has made perfect forever. So justification is permanent. The question is for evangelicals is have you been born again or have you been deceived with a false gospel have you been deceived by unbiblical means of evangelism by repeating a prayer and so many people have repeated a prayer but their hearts are still far from God they honor God with their lips but their hearts are not there with God and so I really encourage people when you give the gospel the only thing you can do at that point is ask people to repent and believe the gospel that is the only saving response We cannot lead people into a sinner's prayer or have them walk an aisle or raise their hand. That has filled our churches with false converts. And we need to let people know, too, that our salvation is not based on a past decision, but on a present reality. So I hope that uh, your listeners would take that to heart. But our assurance, I mentioned we're, we're, we're trusting the promise of God. We're trusting the power of God we see in Romans eleven twenty nine, God's gifts are irrevocable. And so once God gives us the gift of eternal life, he will never take the gift back. Um, We're saved because of God's love for us. Nothing can separate God's love for those who he has saved. I mean, we see that in Romans chapter 8. Uh, we see that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our eternal inheritance in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. So there's so many scriptures that point to the assurance of eternal life, which is why, again, if you're lacking confidence in whether or not you are truly doing enough in your sanctification, don't look at yourself, look at the Lord Jesus. But then I must say that sanctification is the will of God. And so once we've been justified, we begin the process of sanctification by putting to death the evil deeds of the flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit and conforming our lives to the life of Christ. We become more like Christ as we abide in his word and we obey him through love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And so that's the process of sanctification, which ultimately ends in glorification
0: Yeah, and and again, these are a lot of the things that I think that we as Christians, we need to be able to understand, again, defining terms, but then also understanding this is this is completely different than what we see in, like, the Catholic Church or in Islam or in Mormonism. Like, there's a certain progression, there's justification, once you're saved, you're always saved, and then there's the process of sanctification, whereas a, a lot of these other religions, they get that backwards. They put sanctification first and then justification after.
1: Or they mix the two. Yeah, As I mentioned in Catholicism, they mix justification and sanctification because your initial justification is water baptism. But then you can lose that through sin, and you have to be re-justified. And so they intermix the doctrines of sanctification and justification. They never know where they stand before a holy and righteous God. And so there's a lot of doubt in a Catholic's life, which is why I like to share 1 John 5.13 with them where John writes to those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that they can know right here and now that they have in their possession eternal everlasting life with the savior. Oh that is such good news for Catholics because they only have conditional life. They never know in this life whether or not they're going to heaven.
0: Yeah. And, and so so when so when Christians are talking to Catholics, right? Um, again, because there are, there's so many differences between Catholicism and Christianity, but there's also a lot of similar terminologies and that sort of thing. What would be, do you, what do you feel is the most effective way for a Christian to share the gospel with a Catholic that's not going to be overly complicated or, you know, take forever to itemize all the differences? Like what's going to be the most effective way to get to the root issue of the gospel?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Jeff. You have to start with the holiness of God and that He is our Creator, and we are held responsible for being obedient to Him. We need to share with Roman Catholics that one act of disobedience is condemnation, and I think James 2.10 says it all because Catholics believe they have to obey the law in order to be saved. But in James 2.10, we see that if you keep the whole law perfectly but stumble at one part, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. We need to let Roman Catholics know there's no such thing as venial sin. When you commit the smallest sin, you are under condemnation and your only hope is justification. And that only comes through faith alone and Christ alone, believing he is the all-sufficient Savior. And so you start with the holiness of God and we're held responsible to him as our creator. One day we will stand before him and have to give an account for all that we did in this life. And so we share that because we've broken the law, we are hopeless and helpless sinners. That we cannot do anything to save ourselves. That we must turn to Christ. That God sent his only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He became the eternal God in human flesh. He went to the cross to die as a substitute for those who would put their trust in him. And he bore all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our punishment. And in turn, he gives us his righteousness. And that is the good news. And the only way you can receive the gift of eternal life is through repentance, which is turning away from the false way that you once embraced and believing the true gospel of Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that that's, that's the perfect way, I think, to end this, is, is around the gospel. Because because again, that's the key, and that's the key distinction amongst Christians and virtually every uh, or not, not virtually, but real, realistically, every other religion out there is we have we have the only gospel that is based exclusively on the work of Christ, not on us. And I always say, like we're we're saved in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. And that I think is is the key mentality to have when we're not only sharing the sharing our faith with others, but also just in our reassurance of our salvation. Like we're not saved because of ourselves; we're saved because of Christ.
1: Amen. And um, as we share the gospel, so often today, three R's have left out of a gospel presentation. We mentioned repentance. That's one of the R's that's often left out. We also need to talk about the righteousness of God, that his righteousness requires perfect righteousness for entrance into heaven. That's when we can show people how hopeless they are, because you cannot be perfectly righteous. You have to trust in the righteousness of Christ and Romans 5:17 says that we receive that as a gift. And then the last one is the resurrection of Christ. We must make sure we include the resurrection of Christ because Paul said, unless Christ has been raised from the dead, we're still dead in our sins. So yeah, the glorious gospel of grace, it is the greatest news anyone could ever hear because it speaks of the greatest gift, the gift of the eternal life that anybody could ever receive. And I really hope your listeners... Uh, burdened down with a greater compassion for those who are perishing because their only hope is that we proclaim the gospel to them.
0: Yeah. And I just, I just had somebody on the Facebook comments really quick. They asked if you would define repentance. Um, Cause I know that there is a couple different definitions out there of repentance. You know, one is repent of your sins. One is repent of your, uh, your mindset about Christ. Like if you could define repentance for us that way, again, we're defining our terms.
1: Sure. Well, the Greek word metanoia means literally to change your mind. And so when you hear the gospel, you have to change your mind about the false way that you believed. And that's why Jesus preaching to the Jews in Mark 1:15, he said, repent and believe the gospel. Change your mind about the former way you believe and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, whenever there's a change of mind, Jeff, it's going to produce a change in direction. But always starts with the change of mind first. And you see throughout Scripture, in fact, um, in the book of Acts, it's really interesting. You never see the word love mentioned. The gospel went forth in the first century, and people were calling, the apostles were calling people to repent, because God has fixed a day that he will judge the world. And so this change of mind about what sin is, about who Jesus is, about the way of salvation, that needs to be given as the clear truth, so that people people can turn or change their mind from the way they previously believed and believe the true gospel of Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, um, so kind of as we're wrapping up, but like, if people want to follow you, or they want more information, they want to stay up on on what's going on, and you know, understanding their faith and understand what Catholics are teaching, and you know, false religions and that sort of thing. How can they follow you, and what's the best way to you know stay in touch and keep up on everything that's going on?
1: Well, two ways. Our website, proclaimingthegospel.org, a wealth of information, lots of resources, lots of articles, uh, different um, podcasts, um, TV interviews, audio messages. We also have a, a Facebook, uh, Proclaiming the Gospel Facebook page. And we also, um, people call in and we uh, we encourage Roman Catholics to call in because We love to share the gospel with them, and especially those who have been um, open to our website, they've read some of our books, maybe our gospel tracts. I have a book called Preparing for Eternity, which was written out of love for Roman Catholics, and it's not only a great discipleship tool to train evangelicals, but I've I've written it in a way where you can actually give it to a Roman Catholic because it speaks the truth in love, and I... I contrast what the Bible teaches right alongside what the Roman Catholic Catechism teaches. It forces a Roman Catholic to make a choice. Should I trust Christ in his word, or should I trust the teachings and traditions of my religion? It is impossible to believe both. And so many Roman Catholics have been set free from the bondage of religious deception by reading that book. So thank you for the privilege of coming on your show.
0: Of course. I, I really enjoy this and, and, I, and I feel like we covered a lot of ground, but also too, like I feel like a lot of this was really important to define terms because I think it's really important that people understand, again, what do we believe? What do Catholics believe and understand the differences? So I, I'm really appreciative of you coming on and you know, we can kind of talk through a lot of that. Sure. So well, yeah.
1: Do you want to do a follow up?
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, let, let's do, let's do a follow up at some point and I'm definitely looking
1: forward to it. All right, Jeff. Thanks yeah, a
0: lot. Of course. And then for, for everybody else out there as well, we'll be back on Wednesday. We've got another live um, episode of Conversations. Uh, Sam Jones is going to be on from Shining Light Podcast, so make sure you guys tune in for that. And again, just like today, we'll be streaming live uh, right here on Facebook. And then any other info, go to GatekeepersOnline.com, and uh, we'll see you guys on Wednesday.
1: Learn more about HIV testing, treatment, and prevention at doitforyumc.org.